This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. In conjunction with the Washington Indivisible Network, Indivisible Tacoma, and Indivisible Eastside, we bring you our Insider Town Hall series, speaking with key decision makers in Congress and the state legislature about issues Indivisibles care about. Today, a discussion with 9th CD Congressman Adam Smith. He is the chair of the Armed Services Committee, and he joins us to discuss a wide array of crucial topics, getting his thoughts on this year's defense spending, Indivisible's legislative agenda, and Trump's ongoing attempts to overturn our election and our democracy. This conversation was recorded on the evening of Thursday, December 15th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Insider Town Hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I host the Washington State Indivisible podcast. Thank you to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Onjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. Special thanks to Kevin Jones and Louise Pathé. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral homelands of many indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest. So we are very excited tonight to bring you tonight's Congressional Insider Town Hall. This is something new for us. So as we get ready for the next Congress, uh, regardless of what is going to happen in the Senate runoff, we know that we're going to be working very, very hard to advance as many of our priorities as we possibly can. And so we are going to be talking with members of our Democratic congressional delegation to learn what their priorities are hear what they feel can be accomplished in 2021, and then talk about how we as activists can work together with them to achieve our common goals. So in light of that, we very much want your participation. It is my intention to take the last 15 to 20 minutes this evening for audience questions, so please do enter them into the chat bar. And with that, I am very honored to introduce our guest, Congressman Adam Smith. He represents Washington's 9th Congressional District, and he is the chair of the powerful House Armed Services Committee. Congressman Smith, uh, it is a pleasure to see you again, sir. How are you? Yeah, great to see you. Appreciate the chance, as always. Well, the first thing that I will say is congratulations on your reelection. Uh, we are very happy to have your continued service here in the state. Uh, so I thought that we would begin our conversation uh, talking about the recent passing of the NDAA. This is, of course, the National Defense Authorization um, as chair. You have referred the, to this as your bill, so congratulations on its passing. This uh, represents the largest discretionary portion of our budget at $740 billion. It passed both the House and the Senate now with bipartisan veto-proof majorities. And we can talk about Trump's threats to veto it. Briefly, I wonder if you could just go over a couple of the provisions that you're personally happiest with in this. Sure, yeah. And, and technically, this year it is my bill. It's the House bill, and uh, I'm the prime sponsor. So isn't that exciting? Uh, last year, it was the Senate bill. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, the, the the oversight that we conduct on the Pentagon, I think, is important. And this year's bill is, I think, particularly noteworthy for its focus on diversity um, and on dealing with problems that I think the Pentagon has had in terms of recruiting uh, and promoting uh, you know, diverse populations, uh, people of color in particular. And we, in this bill, create a chief diversity officer within the Pentagon. We also appoint a special uh, in, inspector general uh, to focus on diversity issues, as well as several other provisions, you know, focusing on the, the problem of white supremacy uh, within DOD. Um, for DOD to sort of move into the future here, um, they, they've got some issues to deal with in terms of honoring diversity, uh, making sure they're recruiting and promoting people appropriately, and also dealing with uh, some extremism within their ranks. 
Um, so I think we, we have a nice package of provisions that the Congressional Black Caucus and Anthony Brown, in particular member from Maryland, worked on to get that done. Uh, we also, um, and what is becoming sort of the annual Carolyn Maloney uh, National Defense Authorizing Act, she's a member from um, uh, Manhattan, who last year was the lead on the paid parental leave provision, which we got into the bill. And this year we we had drafting error last year. We left out uh, FAA employees and a few others. This year's bill gets everybody in. Uh, this year, she's got the beneficial ownership uh, legislation, uh, which is easiest understood. Corporations' ability to basically hide who truly owns the company is a major crime problem, for one thing. It's also a major accountability problem. And we have the U.S., because of our lax corporate laws, has become sort of a, a haven for you know, criminal elements to form companies and hide who truly owns them. Uh, we got a bill this year that, that cleans that up. Um, so I think those are, those are some of the provisions. Obviously, there's hundreds of others that are in there. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an enormous uh, bill, but, sure. But that's 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 the main gist of it. Well, shout out to Carolyn Maloney. Uh, I used to be represented by her when I lived in Manhattan. I will mention that uh, there were some green provisions in this year's NDAA uh, that I, I thought maybe you might take a second to talk about. Sure. Well, we had um, we've got a package of lands bills, basically. Um, which are wilderness designation, uh, mostly wilderness designation. There were some other issues, um, an issue around uranium mining in the Grand Canyon that were put in on the House side uh, that did not survive uh, the conference report. You know, we have done uh, lands bills in the NDA before, obviously not in our jurisdiction, but back in 2015, we did a big, huge deal where we sort of pulled a bipartisan set of issues together. Um, and the way we do that is, since it's not our jurisdiction, we let the committees of jurisdiction work out an agreement. And if they can work out an agreement, we put it in, which skips past some of the procedural problems that they have doing it by regular order. We put it in the defense bill and we go forward. The 2015 package was pretty comprehensive. Ultimately, environmentalists uh, were not thrilled with one aspect of that agreement. Um, something to do with copper. I forget the details. Um, but this year, we really didn't have any bipartisanship on this. Um, these were, I think, eight separate Democratic bills put into one. Um, and we just didn't have anything on the Senate side uh, that they were willing to agree to. Oh, I, gosh, I totally left out when I was talking about the diversity issues. We, we do require the military to change the names, not just of military bases, but of anything on military installations that is named for Confederates. Um, that was the big get that we got that the, the president wasn't happy about it and Jim Inhofe wasn't happy about it, but we were able to, to, to force it into the bill, basically. So that was the main focus there. We were not able to get the lands provisions. They were in the House bill, but the Senate is controlled by Republicans um, and the president is a Republican uh, for another, what do we got, 36 days, something <laughs> like that. Um, so that was in there, but it fell out in conference. Well, the uh, provision about the renaming of bases for Confederate soldiers uh, that had been named for Confederate soldiers uh, was one of the things that Trump had uh, threatened to veto uh, over. The other was liability protections for social media companies. Uh, Press Secretary Kelly McEnany said today that he still plans to veto. If he does, will there be enough GOP votes to override, do you believe? Sure. Two quick things on that. First of all, the president is, is vetoing this bill over one, one thing. Uh, we actually got to, we, we, we convinced them to accept the base renaming provisions. He's vetoing it because at the last minute, literally like the week before Thanksgiving, Mark Meadows called me up 
and said that he wanted us to insert into the defense bill a repeal of the so-called Section 230. Section 230 is the law that was passed, I think, 25 years ago um, that basically protected social media platforms from liability. In other words, you're not responsible for the content if somebody else puts it on. The person who puts it on is you're not. Uh, there are, have been some exceptions to that, um, but you know, and the president is upset because he wants to be able to lie to his heart's content on social media and basically control all of the dialogue on this into his own in his own sort of twisted way of looking at it. But understand, this had nothing to do with the defense bill, literally nothing. Um, it was not part of the bill. It was not part of our discussion. Now, as I've mentioned, we, we occasionally take issues that are not in our jurisdiction. Um, but if we do that, we do that early in the process. It's put in the House and Senate. You don't come in after the conference report and say, we're going to drop this in. But the president decided that this was the only vehicle that he could get to repeal this. And this is a really controversial issue. I'm not personally opposed to some liability for social media platforms, but what he was proposing you know, was was just a, a total you know elimination of any protections, and also there are committees of jurisdiction who are, who want to work this issue. It's got no business being in the bill. To answer your question, yes, I am quite confident that we will have sufficient votes to override his veto um, for a variety of reasons, and you know we'll see. I mean, I I expect him to veto it. Um, he's trying to figure out the rules. He's he's not he doesn't pay close attention to those details. We do. Um, so once he figures that out and decides when it is he wants to be towed, he's got 10 days. He's got till December 23rd, I think it is. Uh, we'll have the votes to override. We got 200, oh, sorry, we got 335 votes in the House, 335 to I think 76, something like that. Um, and the Senate was 84 to 13. So that's comfortably, you don't, you don't even have to be good at math to know that that's comfortably past two thirds. I was going to ask you if you had communicated with your counterpart, Senator Inhofe on this, but it sounds as if you have, and it sounds as if the votes are there. Yeah. And God bless Inhofe. He's willing to take on, you know, Trump on this, Um, you know, because I mean, he's got things he wants in the defense bill and it's ridiculous that Trump's talking about, you know, vetoing this bill over that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a rare instance where the Republicans in both the House and the Senate are, have been willing to uh, take on Trump. I had read anecdotally just a piece in Axios talking about how uh, Senator Inhofe really uh, worked very hard uh, and was quite vocal with the president saying you must pass this bill uh, because I think ultimately he wouldn't be able to protect him from a veto. Um, I want to ask you next about the COVID relief package. This is top of mind for so many people right now because we know that protections are about to run out. And this is also a very fluid situation. Um, We have the omnibus spending bill uh, due at the end of the week. So... Democrats have come down from $2 trillion to about $908 billion, I think because Democrats realize the urgency, want to get something done. Uh, Mitch McConnell has obstructed, it is my understanding, because he wants liability protection for corporations in perpetuity if, they're, if their employees get COVID, which is something that I just find so personally outraging. And he also is against about $100 billion in state and local funding that Democrats want because municipalities and states can't print money. Um, I'll just ask you, do you feel that there is a line in the sand that Democrats should not cross in negotiations here? As a general rule, and I know this is contrary to how people look, I don't like drawing lines in the sand. Um, You know, if it's a bad deal, I don't take it. Um, You never know what you might get. So, you know, to say we can't have this, I mean, that sort of boxes you in, um, you know, so I, I, I don't draw a line. That's not the way I look at it. Now, I will tell you that there are things that, you know, would not be acceptable. 
and certainly on the liability reform, as you're describing it, you know, any sort of protection that 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 is at all broad makes long-term changes to our tort laws not acceptable. And, and look, this is a this is a solution in search of a problem. As I understand it, across the nation right now, there are three lawsuits around COVID. That's it. Um, I think these things are going to be extraordinarily difficult to prove in terms of who is responsible for what. I don't think tort law needs to be changed on this front. Um, but if we can make some cosmetic change that, that Trump's going to be OK with, uh, sorry, Trump, McConnell, in this case, is going to be OK with, um, you know, I, I'm open to the conversation if it gets us gets us a broader agreement. And my understanding is, you know, McConnell is dead set against the support for state and local government. Can, can you? Um, I'm just going to stop you. Pardon my interruption. Sure. Can you, in your understanding, why do you think he is against funding for for state and local municipalities? That's a really hard question to answer. Except that about six eight months ago, um, he said that he said he felt that there were states that were you know spending money irresponsibly and we were bailing them out of their own bad decisions. He said that, and I guess he's decided to stick to it. And the other reason he's decided to stick to it is. You know, sadly, he has he's the reason that we don't have another COVID relief package, pure and simple. The Senate Republicans have steadfastly the, the only thing that they put on the table was a further PPP. So basically money for businesses. Um, and I'm fine with PPP. But by the way, our original package was three trillion dollars. We, we came down to two. We passed the three trillion dollar package in May. We came down to two trillion at the end of September. And you're talking about helping people with food security, helping people not get kicked out of their houses, helping with public health, um, helping hard hit industries like the airline industry and restaurants, all the stuff that has been that McConnell has set aside. And I think he just sort of decided that he didn't want to upset his, quote, fiscal conservatives. And yes, that belongs in quotes by, by spending too much money. And then he held on to the majority. He feels like he got away with it. He wasn't held accountable. So, so why change his mind? And, you know, I mean, there's all this, you know, extremist rhetoric about, you know, blue states don't need the help. So it's gotten caught up in a lot of politics. But look, state and local governments need this money in part because it's state and local governments who are going to be distributing the vaccine. OK, and if they don't have the money, then I think that's a crucial, crucial part of this. But McConnell has decided, you know, he didn't want to do it for one reason or another. And their strategy is to blame Democrats. And, and sadly, it's been kind of effective. As obvious as it is that McConnell's the one who hasn't done it, so many people want to go, oh, politicians, partisanship, they're all terrible. All terrible. It's all their fault. Sometimes, yeah. This time, no. If you want COVID relief, it's Mitch McConnell's fault that you didn't get it, pure and simple. Now, they are, as we speak, putting together potentially a deal on this that, like you said, round 900 billion would have some money for state and local. What I don't know, because I haven't been like deep inside the negotiation is what does the live, is there, is there innocuous liability stuff that we can give him? I don't know. I don't know that law well enough to do that without doing too much damage. I just want to circle back on something that you mentioned, uh, and this relates to a tweet of yours. Uh, you said, what every American needs to understand is that Mitch McConnell and President Trump are blocking relief full stop. And as, as you say, this is what McConnell does. He refuses to take up bills. He is proud of being the graveyard of legislation in the Senate. And as you say, most Americans see it as gridlock. It's both sides not getting anything done. And I would ask you, because you have a lot of people who are influential on social media watching right now, you have a lot of activists. How can 
we help drive this message home in an effective way that McConnell is the reason that people are not getting relief and, and, and that he's doing it on behalf of corporations? Yeah. You know, I think, obviously, you know, you, you send the message out consistently. I think the problem we have um, is that we have internal struggles within the Democratic Party. Um, and as such, the activists, on the one hand, yeah, they're 100% with you on, you know, what Mitch McConnell is doing. On the other hand, they're also fundamentally trying to change the Democratic Party itself. So whereas McConnell and Trump, their loyal supporters are like, you tell us what to do and we're doing it um, with great enthusiasm. Within the party, there's always a little cross, you know, currents. You know, I, and I'm sorry, I'll say this and go ahead and start on the conversation. Uh, but I saw Bernie Sanders talking about this. And Bernie Sanders was very insistent that McConnell was, you know, irresponsible in what he was doing. And then he said, and furthermore, I think Democrats have given away too much already. Um, and so his basic position was that Democrats should insist on at least $2 trillion and we have to get help to the American people. Okay, well, that's kind of cool, but you know, that's not on the table, all right? Um, you know, so the message is already sent that if we come back with a $9 billion package, you know, what is what are the activists gonna say? Are they gonna say, Mitch McConnell, damn you for not you know, agreeing to $2 trillion? Are they more likely to say, they're the Democrats again, caving? giving in. They should have insisted on more. This isn't good enough. So at the end of the day, McConnell's people are loyal. Our people turn on each other and we lose messages that we ought to win. I mean, I, I see it over and over again. You know, I'll tell you, know, my own personal pet peeve, I keep mentioning paid parental leave because of things that were in last year's defense bill in the House side that fell out in conference. A lot of activists were very upset. Uh, Bernie famously called last year's defense bill an astonishing act of moral cowardice um, in, in a press release, all right? So giving paid parental leave to all federal employees in the defense bill, mind you, no small legislative accomplishment, isn't, isn't just not a victory for progressives and Democrats. It, it is an astonishing act of moral cowardice. You know, and the Republicans will win. So, I, I mean... And, and look, for the moment, I'm not passing judgment on the internal struggle within the Democratic Party. There are people who feel very strongly that the Democratic Party is not as progressive as it needs to be, and they have to force it in that direction. But this is one of the costs of that. You know, if you're turning on each other internally, it makes it much more difficult to win a broader message war. This obviously begs a much larger discussion, and uh, you being a self-proclaimed radical pragmatist, um, I, I actually do want to get your thoughts on uh, so, some other aspects of what you're talking about in just a moment. But I will just ask you briefly, as I mentioned, there is a $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill that must pass on Friday. The, 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 this, the CR took us to this Friday. Do you think that we can get some of the relief done that way? And, and if so, what might we get? That's the plan. The plan right now, what they're talking about and what they're trying to do, and I know because I've been talking to Nancy you know, quite a bit because we're trying to work out all the details of the defense bill, and I talk about this stuff too. The plan is to link the COVID relief package to the omnibus spending bill, put them together in one. We're, the, the spending bill is done. We, we have an agreement on that. Uh, the question is, can we put the COVID relief package? Most likely, if the COVID relief comes together, it's going to be something close to what this bipartisan agreement was that the Senate has floated. Um, about a week ago, uh, which is PPP relief, individual checks, extended unemployment, and then some, though nowhere near in my view, as much money as is necessary 
uh, for state and local government. Um, and I'm sure there'll also be some public health support adding up to about a little over $900 billion. Now, if we give Mitch some sort of, you know, fig leaf on liability protection, can we get that up a little higher? Look, I personally, I, I voted for the $3 trillion package for a reason. I think there is that much need out there. As you look at you know, that the poverty rate is unbelievably high, food insecurity is unbelievably high, you know, people are getting, you know, can't pay their rent, can't pay their mortgages. But right now, if I had to guess, I would guess the best review is probably $900 billion range. And it all comes down to whether or not we can get some sort of agreement on liability reform. The plan is to link them together and hopefully vote Thursday. Before uh, we proceed, I want to recognize some people who have joined us. Uh, former Representative Marcy Maxwell, uh, welcome to you, my friend. Uh, Bellevue City Council member Janice Zahn is here. And special thanks to our co-host tonight, Indivisible East Side, which I did not say at the top, but uh, we are so grateful to you. Uh, I'm going to switch over and talk about something that uh, is personally disturbing to me, and I know I'm not alone in this, and this is Trump's uh, attempts to overturn the election that he has now officially lost. So as we know, last week, 126 Republican House members, including uh, Washington Republicans Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Dan Newhouse, signed on to an amicus brief to invalidate uh, millions of votes in states that Biden won. I'll just ask you, what was your gut reaction when you heard this? I think it's unconscionable. I think it is the the gravest attack on our representative democracy in the 200 plus year history of our country. Because um, basically what they're saying is our guy didn't win. We think we have enough control of the court to get them to turn it uh, so that we can basically end our election. I mean, look, there are a lot of authoritarian governments. I mean, they, they have elections in Syria. OK, um, so, you know, I mean, it, the mere act of having an election isn't what makes you a democracy. Um, it's having, you know, a, a open, transparent system where the, the winner is accepted. So what they were trying to do was to destroy our democracy, pure and simple. And I, I happened to I was on a call this morning with our delegation. And I heard both Kathy McMorris Rogers and Dan Newhouse, um, you know, try to defend this. And their defense is pathetic. I mean, and I, I like Dan. I work with him fairly closely, and I know he means well. And I think his his notion was, well, look, we you know, there are a lot of people who don't believe in the outcome of the election, so so we had to you know give it a hearing so that people could you know have a chance to air their differences. No, if you file a lawsuit, you're saying that this election wasn't proper. All right, you don't you don't file a lawsuit with the court to say, look, I know I'm wrong. But I want you to make it clear that I'm wrong so that other people will understand that. That's not why you file a lawsuit. You file a lawsuit because you believe you should win. And you file an amicus brief. You're saying these five states should have their election results thrown out and Trump should be made president. And that is pretty close to sedition as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's reprehensible and incredibly frightening. It seems to me that this there's a delicate balance here. Uh, up to this point, Biden has projected uh, calm. I think he's treated a lot of this as a stunt. His tone changed yesterday. But, you know, you don't want to lend legitimacy to these tactics. But, yeah. you know, and then, then on the other hand, we have Democratic Senator Chris Murphy taking to the floor of the Senate saying that this should be a hair on fire moment that if we don't stand up, 
that the GOP may start stealing future elections. And of course, we recognize that as a result of all of this, there is escalating violence. There, there are death threats against people who are certifying votes. And I'll just ask you, what do you believe the proper response here should be to what the GOP is doing and or what the GOP is, is, is becoming, which, as you say, is an anti-democracy party? Chris Murphy's response, I think, is the appropriate response, and I think the threat is grave and deepening um, because <laughs> fun facts about the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that actually requires states to award their electoral votes based on the popular vote, <laughs> which, like, think about that for a second. So if, and, and, they, and they gerrymand su- successfully in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania so that Republicans can continue to control the e- legislature even after they don't have control of the vote. So if, I don't know, say the state of Pennsylvania wanted to meet in the legislative session come February and say, you know what? From now on, the electoral votes to the state of Pennsylvania will be awarded based on a vote of the legislature. There's nothing unconstitutional about them doing that. They could do that. You know, if they want to come along in the state of Georgia, like they're already doing and make it more difficult to vote to under, they can do all manner. I mean, I forget which state it was. There's one state that wanted to award their electoral votes based on the number of counties that vote for the, the, the nominee, as opposed to to basically take each state and turn it into a larger electoral college. And of course, Democrats tend to be concentrated in urban areas, even in the state of Washington every year. Republicans have more. They win more counties than we win, okay? And they so they are getting all kinds of creative in terms of how to fundamentally block democracy. I think it's incredibly important that we stand up and let people know about this. And, and t- it is a hair on fire moment. Now, the other thing I'll say about this that I hope people understand is we sort of lost track of what makes a representative democracy work and, and why it's important to have one. It's important to have one so that everyone has a voice and so that we, we have a rules-based system that people can rely on even when they lose. Because increasingly, and as someone who negotiates on this defense bill with all manner of different issues, it's sadly not just Republicans who don't seem to grasp this. I, I hear Democrats you know, saying that, um, you know, I didn't get my way, therefore it was unfair. It was wrong. We need to rip this process up. And I think people lose track of the fact that you don't put a system in place so that you can win. All right. You know, if your mission is, all right, I've got the five point plan that's going to solve all the world's problems. I must jam these down everybody's throat. Then you don't want a democracy. okay? or maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Depends on who you can persuade of what. We have to get back to understanding why a representative democracy is so important in the first place, because it's inclusive. And also the other thing, I don't know. I mean, I think it's helpful to hear from other people because I I always say I, I like to think of myself as a reasonably intelligent guy. I'm wrong all the time all the time, all right? And I'm constantly coming up against people who, you know, I may disagree with them, we don't, and, and I'll be in discussion and go, oh, hell, you know, you're right about that. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, so yeah, we should probably do it that way. But if I'm coming at it from the perspective of, you're just an obstacle, all right? I gotta bulldoze you in order to get what I want. <sighs> I mean, that's the, that's the step that takes us down the end of democracy, and it worries me greatly. That even just hearing those words come out of your mouth, the end of democracy uh, is 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 chilling to me. It, I, I do want to ask if you believe that there should be some sort of 
repercussion or consequences uh, for the actions of these 126 members. Bill pa- Representative Bill Pascrell uh, is calling on Speaker Pelosi to refuse to seat them in the next session, but that would take a two-thirds vote. Uh, some are suggesting a censure, which I believe could happen with a simple majority. What, if any, sorts of consequences do you think would be appropriate in this situation? You know, I'd have to think about that, speaking of things that I could be wrong about. Um, so I need to have, get, get people's you know, feedback, think about it going forward. But my initial reaction is, you know, anything we sort of do along those lines misses the point. Um, we, we have to fundamentally, you know, go to the American people. We have to make our case better. Okay. And this is another matter of considerable controversy um, within the within the Democratic Party. I'm not happy about the way the 2020 election came out. Okay. I am deliriously happy that knock on wood, come January 20th, Donald Trump is going to be out of the White House. That was no small feat and it was enormously important. But when you step back and see that he got 73, 74 million votes, we lost at least 11, maybe 12 seats in the House and missed a golden opportunity to to pick up the Senate, losing seats that we should have won. Um, Personally, I don't think this is a moment to celebrate that we're doing everything right. We did a lot of things right. Okay, you know, I think incredible turnout, incredible organization. Um, Activists turn a lot of people out. Um, We raised an enormous amount of money. I think we outspent the Republicans on absolutely every single race. But there's a core problem that we still didn't win the elections we should have won. Um, And I think that the moment is to come out and, and redouble our efforts to figure out how do we build a coalition that can deliver a coherent message and move forward. And if we get into a fight about censuring members on the House floor, yeah, I'll tell you that the members I talked to, and there are a lot of members of my committee, Jared Golden is one that occurs to me. He represents the, the district in Maine. Um, it's 50-50. Um, and, and Jared, pretty straightforward approach to this. He says, if I'm engaged in a partisan argument, it doesn't matter whether I'm right or not. It hurts me with my constituents. If I'm working on something that's going to solve a problem for my constituents, you know, whether it's health care or jobs or whatever, that's all good. You get me into a partisan fight. If we force members like Jared Golden to go out on the floor and vote on whether or not to censure all the Republicans, that's hurting us in the places that we need to win because that's not what the American is. So I think we got to get our message right and go out and win, win elections um, rather than looking for ways to, to, to hold people accountable. The best way to hold people accountable is to beat them in an election, in my view. It does seem that, uh, by and large, Republicans only understand power and the dynamics of power. And so... Yeah. Uh, and, and with that in mind, I, I do want to get your thoughts on the 2021 session there, you know, based on the the Georgia runoff. There are two possible scenarios. I think I'd like to talk about the more challenging one that the Democrats don't take the Senate. Um, in this case, Indivisible has a three part agenda uh, that members will be pushing uh, Congress to support. And the first is to undo the damage of the Trump administration. And we know that a lot can be done through executive orders. I'm wondering for you as chair of the Armed Services Committee, how you might see your role in undoing some of the damage that Trump has done, say, on the international stage. Yeah, it starts within the the Pentagon, before I get to the international stage, just rebuilding the Pentagon. I mean, you know, you see, even as we speak, he's appointing um, his sycophants to various positions within the Pentagon. We got to 
sweep them out, put professionals back in there and get the Pentagon functioning in an effective way. And then I think we do need to aggressively go out to the world, even as a member of Congress, once we're able to travel again, we need to get out there and reconnect with the world and say, look, the, the days of us trying to browbeat you into submission are gone, let's work together. Rebuild alliances, rebuild the notion that the U.S. is one nation on this earth that wants to work together with others. Yeah, we're going to advance our interests as all nations do, uh, but we're also going to find ways to work together. I think that's that's crucial to fixing. So there is a lot, you know, within the the executive side that we can do to undo the damage that Trump has done. But just getting professionalism back into the place. There was actually a good article about. You know, Joe Biden has an opportunity here. He should stop the tradition of passing out ambassadorships to the highest bidder. Um, you know, we don't need any more Gordon Sondland's. Uh, let, let's put professionals out there in the places where they are and show the world that we're serious about moving forward. So I think there's a ton of work to do to, 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 to rebuild our credibility as a nation. Um, you know. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I also read an article about American exceptionalism, which sort of gets me to the other big thing that I want to do within DOD, which I really do want to talk about, um, is, and that's getting a sort of center-left democratic um, national security policy that we can get behind, because there's major divisions within the Democratic Party about the defense bill right now, and there's a couple of key issues I I, I want to address uh, on that front. So, you know, no, I'll go ahead and address them. Please. You know, I think we have a real problem, three big areas why Democrats are, you know, tend to be distrustful of the Pentagon. Uh, number one is the forever war problem. We need a reset on that. We need to think, okay, does it make sense to be in the dozens of countries that we're in? Um, in some cases, in those countries, dropping bombs and, you know, killing people in a variety of different ways. Is the downside of that, you know, greater than the upside? How can we reset on the 2001 AUMF and the 2002 AUMF? Now, the problem I have with that is we do we do face a threat from these international groups. And I'll just it's, say it's that the war. AUMF is the authorization for use of military force. Yeah, under the guise of which we're doing a lot of the stuff that we're doing, not, you know, in Somalia and Afghanistan and the Middle East and Libya um, and a bunch of different places. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of times when I deal with progressives who are concerned about all this, um, th there's not a significant appreciation for the fact that transnational terrorist groups are a problem uh, and we need to figure out how to deal with them. Not the way we've been, sure, but let's have a plan. Second, this whole Russia-China great power competition thing. You know, I want to change the national security policy of this country so that it isn't focused on the idea that we have to be able to win a major war with China and Russia. That's a that's a losing gambit. Um, it's it, it just has a spending money we shouldn't be spending and focuses on the wrong issue. So I want to figure out how we can work together on that. And lastly, is the sheer size of the budget. You know, we got 195 Democratic votes on the defense bill this year on the conference report. That's the most Democratic votes we've ever gotten on a conference report. Um, you know, but to the, to the extent that people didn't vote for it, overwhelmingly, the issue was $741 billion is too much. Now, I could get into a nice little semantic argument about how my bill does not actually set the amount of money we spend at the Pentagon. Um, that's the appropriations bill and the budget process. But for whatever, whatever reason, it's become sort of the focus. Um, so what, what is a realistic defense budget? to have that conversation. Because again, this is all part of getting Democrats to be more on the same page when we go into those larger fights uh, against what's going on with, with Republicans and others. So there is a lot to rebuild, both in terms of correcting for Trump, but also building a coalition within the Democratic Party that can win elections and govern. And there's still a lot of work to be done on both of those. 
you know, you, you talk about the NDAA and some of the problems that uh, uh, people on the left often have with it, you know, the, the sheer number of it, as you say. And yet, I will say this about it. It does represent an opportunity to deliver wins in precisely the environment that we're talking about. So the second agenda item is trying to deliver wins, wins through must-pass bills like the NDAA. It is the biggest. And I'll just ask you, does having Biden in the White House change what might be possible in a 2022 NDAA? A little bit. I, I, you know, as the pieces move around on the chessboard, this is why I don't draw lines in the sand and do all this stuff, is you never know what's going to be possible. I get an idea of what I'm trying to accomplish, then you look for opportunities where they show up. Um, and I can't say for sure. I mean, it, it's possible that with you know President Biden, that gives us a little more leverage. It's also possible that the Senate Republicans become more recalcitrant. I mean, I was able to get paid parental leave by sort of going around Ron Johnson and Jim Inhofe, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. That's a long story. Um, <laughs> I'd like but, to hear you know, it sometime. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. but, but you know, there's always different ways. So you don't know for sure in terms of what's workable. But let me say that. I think that's, you know, those are the two issues that I try to present on the NDAA is one, can we shift the overall national security policy, as I just described, in a, in a better direction? And by the way, better direction in terms of policy. Forget for the moment making Democrats happy or making anyone happy. And what's the right policy? And, and certainly when you look at Iraq and Afghanistan and, and a lot of the weapons systems that we've sunk money into in the last 20 years, we can do better from a policy perspective. And I want to do that. Um, but the second thing is, how to put this exactly without sounding, you know, I'm good at what I do. Okay. I'm a good legislator. And what we've been able to get done in just two years within that defense bill that doesn't have a damn thing to do with the defense bill is pretty cool. Um, and I, I should also say, by the way, no, that's the wrong way to put it. My team and the various people involved are good at it. You know, it's totally wrong for me to say, eh, it's me, it's me, it's me. No, I got a great team. Carolyn Maloney, like I said, came up with a couple of those ideas. Um, I will say the one thing that my staff and I really prioritize is we bring people in. Okay. You know, I, I'm not sitting up there as the chairman going, I'm just going to do what I want. And you're going to have to live with it. No, I, I thrive. I thrive on democracy, bringing other people in, getting ideas, using their talents, making it work. So I think it's an incredible opportunity, an opportunity that dies if we don't pass the thing, um, as I always like to point out to people. So I think those are the two things that I'm trying to do from a national security armed services perspective as we head into 2021. You said in a recent keynote that you have never lacked for uh, self-confidence. I didn't realize this, that you had actually initially run, decided to run for state senate at 23 years old. So you uh, you have uh, extraordinary confidence and uh, and it shows. And honestly, I, I want some. I, I'm, I'm very envious, sir. If I may, <laughs> my favorite aspect of that story is in June of 1990, after I had been running for like 18 months, the Senate Democratic Caucus did a poll and I was down 61 to 12. Um, and you know, they, they decided that I wasn't worth investing in. Um, and somehow we found a way to win anyway. Um, so that, that's given me, I guess, an outsized amount of optimism. Um, if you can turn something like that around, you got, got to be optimistic in this life. I think it helps. Well, it's carried you through very well. Um, and so then the, th I, I will get to the third agenda item here, but I will say to those of you watching right now, uh, please submit your questions. We are going to turn to questions in just, just a moment here. Uh, and you have alluded to this already. The third agenda item is winning in 2022. And we know that yeah. midterms are generally very bad for first-term presidents. And so we kind of have the wind at our faces here. Again, I say you are a self-proclaimed radical pragmatist. 
What do you think the Democrats can and should push for over the next two years that will set us up to come out on top in 2022? And this is in the scenario in which they don't have the Senate. Yeah, no, and that's a difficult question because I'm not overwhelmed. I just talked about how optimistic I am. <laughs> um, but but when I look at 2022, I think we got some significant challenges uh, in, in terms of being able to deliver a message. And it starts with, you know, the divisions within our party, um, which were were papered over a little bit because of Trump. Um, I think I told you my Indiana Jones analogy the last time we were on the show, so I won't repeat that. Um, but you know, we had a common enemy. Okay, so that that brought us together better. And even then, there were still difficulties. Now we get to 2022, a lot of these internal divisions, and you saw that spill out in the Democratic caucus call shortly after the election um, that I'm sure you all heard about, where some of the moderates were like, you know, defund the police is killing us. Socialism is killing us. You know, a lot of progressives within the caucus took offense to that. um, And a general food fight ensued for a week or so. Um, I think we need to straighten that stuff out. Um, you know, I, as far as an agenda, I, you know, and, and we all have different opinions on that. And this is the, the irony. I mean, in some ways, I am very, very much on the left. The universal access to healthcare, um, totally supportive and frankly, economic justice, huge issue for me, um, which is, you know, I mentioned this beneficial ownership on corporations. There's so much more that we need to do. If you want to see me, you know, not quite sound like Karl Marx, but pretty close. Talking about how corporations in the last 50 years, the money is going to shareholders and executives, and it's not going to workers. And if you want to get at what the single biggest problem in America, other than climate change, is, that's it. So much of the money is in the hands of so few. And it wasn't an accident, okay? Conscious policy decisions were made, starting to some degree with Milton Friedman's column 50 years ago when he said, corporations are not, don't care about your community. Your job is to make money, period, full stop. That was one of the more destructive things ever uttered. The birth of neoliberalism. Yeah, you know, and it just, and we got to go after that because that, I think, you know, economic insecurity and also social insecurity. And by the way, social insecurity isn't just, you know, racist white people afraid of the country becoming, you know, not white anymore. It's, you know, you used to be my father, okay, uh, passed away a long time ago, but, you know, blue collar worker, you know, could, could get a job at a high school education at United. And okay, he wasn't, you know, king of the city or anything, um, but, you know, he could raise a family, could have out now those blue collar jobs, you're going to a food bank. You can't afford a house. Okay. Frequently you become homeless. All right. If we address that economic insecurity, we then address some of these status issues that make people susceptible to extremist ideologies. You know, I think we need to drive that economic narrative. All right. And make that economic narrative as inclusive as possible. Okay. A lot of people are suffering disproportionately communities of color. No question. All right. But let's talk about the economic insecurity and the fact that we're the party that's going to address that. that that's what we used to be um, a, a, as a party. Um, coming out of FDR, you know, we, we were the party that brought people out of the Great Depression. Um, and we kind of lost that. And, and so, but, but that's the discussion we have to have. You know, the agenda has to be, I think, focused on addressing that economic inequality and economic security. Um, and and find a way to work together because we're, we're in trouble heading into 2022. There's no, no doubt about that. A lot of food for thought there. And honestly, 
uh, I could have an entire discussion with you simply about everything that you just, uh, I would love to unpack everything that you uh, just talked about there. I'm afraid that we don't have time because it is time now for us to get into audience questions. There are many. I'm hoping we can get through as many as we can. These are substantive, so I'm not going to ask you to uh, to expound too much here, but uh, I, I was actually quite pleased with the, uh, the, the, the types of questions that we've received here. Uh, Gina asks about aircraft sales in the Middle East. What are guidelines that we are following, and I believe she's asking about the $23 billion sales of arms to the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, including a number of our F-55s and Reaper drones. It's my understanding that the Senate is considering a resolution of disapproval. What are your thoughts about this situation? Yeah, the Senate actually put up the resolution of disapproval, and it was defeated. Uh, So the arms sales have gone through within 30 days. Um, You know, a long, difficult conversation here. We, I think, have the opportunity to build a better relationship with the UAE. Um, I'm worried a little bit about the F-35 sales. Um, I think we also need to have a broader discussion about arms sales in general. I think there is a lot of concern about selling weapons to, gosh, just about anybody for that matter. Um, But if we don't sell them, Russia and China sells them. um, And how do we build a relationship uh, going forward with countries like the UAE? I think the UAE, the peace agreement that they did with Israel. And by the way, it's the UAE that drove that, not not Jared Kushner. Um, Yusuf Atabi is the ambassador to the US from the UAE who really drove both that peace agreement and is trying to pull Saudi Arabia forward into a better direction. So I want to build a better relationship with the UAE. I, I don't want to... Now, do we have to sell them weapons to build that better relationship? I think that's a highly debatable point. Um, and I think we should look for other ways to do it. So I I do not want us to go down the road of saying that the way we build better relationships with countries in the world is to sell them a lot of weapons. Um, I think we need to look for better ways to build that relationship. Um, So I'm worried about that. Um, that, Those arms sales were approved, they're going through, but as we go forward in the future, I think we need to look for other options in terms of how we build those relationships. Yafa asks a question that I've actually been thinking about and uh, debated as to whether or not I was going to ask you. Uh, She says she believes there is a realistic threat of Trump attempting to declare martial law, particularly in light of uh, his filing, uh, filling the Pentagon with sycophants. What I would ask you is, given your relationship with military brass, it's been my understanding that they have categorically said no, that they would not support something like that. But I think a lot of us would sleep a little bit better tonight hearing those words from your mouth. Yeah, this is something I've been worried about for a long time. And, and, I, and I've had a lot of conversations. Chairman Milley and I get along really well. Um, he is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, Mark Esper and I got along really well. And we had a lot of very interesting conversations. Um, about working for who they work for. And my main focus was to, you know, look at that issue in general. And when, when Esper was fired, that was my concern. Now, it seems to me, I've also had several conversations with Secretary of Defense Miller, and I have worked strongly to build a positive relationship with him, um, acting Secretary of Defense Miller, I should say. My sense is that that move was made out of spite um, to, to you know, get back at Esper for not being sufficiently loyal, First, second, because Trump wanted to try to force through some policies like like drawing down in Afghanistan and drawing down in some other places. You know, so the brass is aware of this possibility 
and is not going for it <laughs> at all. Um, so if I can help you a little bit on that, I, I did not, I did not take that for granted. Um, I've had a lot of conversations, worked a lot of angles to make sure that we're in good shape on that. I mean, my gosh, you got Michael Flynn, who was a, a general in the military out there calling for martial law. Yeah. Um, so I'm aware of the threat. I I'm pretty confident that it's contained, but I am not taking that for granted. I, I, I keep those conversations going on an ongoing basis. Thank you. Donald Smith asks, uh, he says, you have said that you oppose war with China, uh, but you support military buildup in the South China Sea, which is aiding Taiwan, potentially provoking the Chinese. Uh, a miscalculation could easily lead to real war. And in the best case, uh, best case scenario, it will cost billions of dollars. Why are we doing this? Yeah, miscalculation kind of goes both ways. Um, what we want to do here is we want to make sure that no, we want to make sure that North Korea doesn't invade South Korea and we want to make sure that China doesn't invade Taiwan. Okay. Um, because if that happens, regardless of whether we build up or don't build up, you're throwing a match on a powder keg. All kinds of bad things can come out of that. So we want to make it clear to China and clear to North Korea that that's a no go. All right. And to do that, you have to have at least enough strength to make it clear that, that you know, there's going to be a high price and a high consequence if you do it. Um, it's worked thus far in, in North Korea. You know, South Korea is getting better in our presence there. You know, if the U.S. wasn't involved, there's no doubt that one of the Kim Jong-un, Kim Il-jong, one of them would have gone in a long time ago with massively destructive consequences that could have bled over into Japan um, and other places. Now, whether or not China would have gone into Taiwan if we didn't have the allies and presence we have in Asia, that's a tougher question. Um, but there's no need to take a chance on that. And, and, and Don and I talk a lot about this. Um, we email back and forth. Um, and I, I, I take his point, but I, I also do think that the US has a more calming presence in the world in some instances than people realize. Um, if China was not checked at all, if there weren't allies there, you know, could that lead to a bigger problem? I think it could. Now, the planning that we need to make here and what I'm really worried about, I'm not worried about the fact that we have a presence in, in, in Asia that's trying to make sure that Taiwan is, is protected. I'm worried about military planning that focuses on the idea that we have to beat China in an all out war and the cost and expense that would go into that. I don't think we do. Um, we have to deter them. We have to make it clear that the cost of an action is too high. In fact, China is the example that I always cite for the best way to do this. China has about 300 nuclear missiles, all right? We have about 5,000. 300 is more than enough to deter adversaries. And so when I argue in the, that our nuclear posture review needs to downsize the size of our nuclear forces, I'm not saying that we don't need to have a nuclear deterrent. We do. I'm just saying that that deterrent can be bought for a much smaller price tag. And the same is true in Asia. You know, China, they got 1.4 billion people to feed. They're not looking for massive disruption. Now, if they could take Taiwan without anybody causing any problems, they'd do it. All right. So that's the balance I'm trying to strike. And I think this is a balance that, that progressives need to strike in national security policy. You know, too often when I hear progressives talk about our national security interests, the message seems to be that all the problems in the world exist just because we provoke people. Mm, sometimes, sure, but you know, there's a whole lot of violence going on out there in the world. It doesn't have anything to do with the United States of America. 
Um, and if we can bring people together and calm that down, I think that that is a role that we can play as well. So it's, it's a matter of striking that balance. You know, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about a bill, a uh, piece of legislation that you just introduced. This is the 911 Diversion to Unarmed Personnel Act. Um, I believe that you are aware that Washington State, uh, our legislature, is going to be making police reforms uh, and police reform measures a priority in this year's session. What if you could talk a little bit about this bill and, and do you see it fitting into a larger discussion about anti-racism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this at the moment is still a missed opportunity that I, that I hope that as we move into 2021, we come out of the pandemic, really address police reform. Um, we're having a long overdue, much more in-depth conversation about systemic racism in America. It's past, and I think that's great. Um, we also need to start actually doing the reforms. And, and, there's a, and the way policing in America um, makes systemic racism worse. If you, if, you, if you basically lay systemic racism over the way we do policing, you've got a recipe for disaster that we've all seen over and over and over again. And basically, you know, we train our police officers, number one, to be hyper aggressive, to stop people all the time, to treat every interaction as a potentially deadly confrontation. And we train them that the only way to handle that deadly confrontation is to maintain the edge, to ramp it up. That's just a recipe for disaster. Um, so we need to change that to begin with. But then when you call 911 on, on a mental health thing, that's what you're getting. You're getting a police officer who has been trained to be hyper aggressive, trained to treat everyone he interacts with as a mortal threat, and trained to escalate to dominate, basically. And if they're going out on a mental health call, you're just begging for trouble on that. So a number of reforms. Number one, let's change the way we train. Let's recognize the downside of hyper-aggressive policing with things like stop and frisk and a whole bunch of other ideas that we've had out there that have created more problems than they've solved. But second, and that's the point of this bill, let's not send them out to deal with things that law enforcement shouldn't be dealing with. And, and we have a model. Eugene, Oregon is doing this. A couple other places have done this. You know, and the most interesting statistic I saw on this is in a given year, the folks in Eugene, I forget what they call that group. Um, is it the CAHOOTS uh, program that you're referring to? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, they, they go out and so they respond to like 29,000 calls. And of those 29,000 calls, on 153 occasions, they had to have police backup. Okay. And, and sometimes the situation is going to be a little bit more dangerous and you will need that. But I think that shows you how seldom. That actually is if you don't send the police in the first place. 153 out of, out of 29,000. I'd like to see, and we have a sort of smaller scale version of this in Seattle. Again, I forget what it's called, but um, first responders that are, that are working on this. We need to get the police out of the business of responding to every single call because they're not the ones who are supposed, supposed to do it, particularly if they're trained for confrontation. So, and this, this bill is one small step to help hopefully advance that, that, that agenda. We had a question about the Northwest Detention Center. Uh, you and other uh, Washington Democratic members of the House and Senate recently sent a letter to uh, DHS Inspector General uh, requesting an investigation. This was a, a story that broke in the Times about the inhumane use of solitary confinement at the NWDC. Um, is there more that Congress can do at this point? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot more that we can do now that we have the Biden administration. 
And keep in mind, again, you know, this all starts with creating confrontation where it doesn't need to be created. These are people who are, you know, they, they are undocumented. Um, they have immigration issues. And so they're being pained in advance of their immigration hearings. They are, for the most part, not threats to the community, you know, and they're being held. And when you're being held like that, that is an inhumane thing to begin with. And then it creates confrontation. And then you move on to solitary confinement. You've got private companies running these things on, on a for-profit, you know, these things are traded on the New York Stock Exchange, trying to, you know, drive up their share price at the expense of the people they're looking after. Um, it is a recipe for inhumane treatment that has been well-documented. Um, so begin with, we need to stop detaining so many people, you know, and really view this as what, what is a risk here. Uh, but then, yes, we also want to get a thorough investigation of what's going on inside of these detention facilities like the one in Tacoma um, and try to correct that behavior. You know, the bill that Congressman Jayapal and I have had for um, several years now um, would require you know, federal standards, which there are not for detention facilities. There are federal standards for prisons, correction facilities, federal correction facilities. But when it comes to the standards inside of these detention facilities, they are set by ICE in cooperation with the private companies running them. We need minimum standards. Uh, with that, I will say thank you uh, for your generosity of time uh, this evening. I realize you've gone over. Um, I will also say uh, happy holidays to you once again. Congratulations on your reelection. And uh, we hope to, uh, to speak with you again soon. I'm happy to do it. I, I figure if I show up wearing a hoodie, the least I can do is, is stay a little extra extra time. So, sorry, <laughs> I didn't have to change and do a better, do a better look. Um, but I do always enjoy these conversations. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you, sir. And it's a, it's a fine trade-off. Uh, Congressman Adam Smith, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you. My thanks again to Kat Pipkin, Julian Jievsky, Kevin Jones, and Louise Pathé. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thank you to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.